worldwide, there are more than 35 million refugees who have fled their homes. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine rages, millions of refugees are seeking safety outside Now, the more than 1.7 million Afghans have been told to leave. Authorities built this refugee camp of 3,500 people in essentially six months after Cameroonians flooded into Chad late last year. More than 13 million people, that's half the population before the war, are in a similar situation. They come from Ukraine, Afghanistan, Eritrea, Sudan, Venezuela, and so many more places around the globe. More than two million people fled from Rwanda in the aftermath of the genocide. To nearly 500,000 Venezuelan migrants who are already... More than 60,000 refugees have crossed the border since the war between Ethiopia's federal government and the... And Republic now home for tens of thousands of people fleeing violence in neighboring Central African Republic. 35 million people, it's an overwhelming number and sometimes hard to wrap your head around the individuals who make it up. So we were doing fieldwork in Colombia, and I was giving meals to Venezuelan mothers and their children. And I remember looking across and seeing this woman who had a child who looked just like mine, and I realized, that could be me. It's so close, right? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, the global refugee crisis. When other countries take in a huge influx of refugees, there's a lot to consider. Erica Friedenland studies how host countries can help manage a refugee surge. Erica Friedenland is a professor at Old Dominion University. Erica, what do you think it is that in all the experiences you've had in other countries, helping refugees, studying refugees, what do you think it is that you've learned about the experience of being a refugee? I think the thing that I've learned most is how close all of us are to that kind of precarity. When I think about the Venezuelans and they were teachers and lawyers and doctors and then suddenly didn't have the money to feed their children and had to go to a different country to have babies because there were no medicines and hospitals. We always think it can't happen to us, but it, it can. And we know that from natural disasters too, right? Hurricane Katrina displaced tons of people in ways that they never expected and took so long to recover from. So you think it might be temporary, but it could last for 10 years before your life is normal again. Has your own family experienced immigration, migration? Yeah, I think migration is part of the human story. It's part of our human right to move, um, to make our lives better. And so my dad's family is from Norway. My mom is from Japan, and she migrated here when she was in her 20s. Um, and my family was displaced by World War II in Japan, my mom's family. My grandmother watched Tokyo get firebombed. My great-grandmother migrated with her children to avoid parts of World War II. And um, I think that story of you know, restarting of, of making a new life somewhere has always intrigued me. What have you seen up close that made you think, this could be me? So we were doing fieldwork in Colombia at a nonprofit organization that was giving um, meals to Venezuelan mothers and their children two or three times a day. And I remember looking across and seeing this woman who had a child who looked just like mine, and I realized, that could be me. It's so close, right? When we were at the Darien, like close to the Darien Gap, which is where um, many of the Venezuelans and Haitians are fleeing through the most dangerous jungle pass in in the world. Um, many people don't make it through, and they're trying to get from, this is the only way to get really from Colombia to Panama to make that journey north, ideally to the United States or Canada. And I watch people taking children into the jungle, wearing flip-flops and t-shirts when it's going to be really cold. Um, and no one would do that unless they, sorry, no one would do that unless they had no choice. And I always try to remind people when I do public talks, right, that you would never make these choices unless whatever's behind you is worse than what's in front of you. Let's talk about two of the countries that have received a lot of refugees in fairly recent years, Greece and Colombia, and the differences between how they welcomed, processed, received these refugees. So the story in Greece 
has some parallels to the story in Colombia, but the outcome is very different. So in Greece in 2015, um, we saw the arrival of over a million people, I mean, 600,000 in just one year. And most of them, 60% of them, came through this one small island. All of the locals who live on that island witnessed about a million people passing through their small community. From what countries? They were coming from mostly Syria at the time, um, some from Afghanistan, some from Iraq. And since that time, it's largely transitioned to North Africans. So local populations at the outset, they were you know, jumping into the water and saving people. They were giving them off the clothes off the clothes off their backs. They were giving them the food off their tables. I mean, they were nominated for awards for their humanitarian efforts. And this tourist community was turned into a humanitarian response zone, right? So tourism died. No one wants to go to a beach when there are refugees sleeping on the shores and arriving by boats. And that hospitality wore off very quickly. What we saw was a transition from this warm reception, this very giving spirit, which is keep in keeping with Greek culture, this culture of hospitality. They felt that hospitality was being abused. And one of the things that happens is that when refugees arrive on the beach, they immediately take their cell phones out of, you know, the, the bag that they was keeping it dry and they call their family. And in the public consciousness in Greece, that meant that they weren't that needy? Why did they have a phone if they were really that desperate? And in the Greeks' minds, part of what they were doing was calling more people to come to them, right? Like, oh, Greeks are so hospitable that we should tell our families that they should also come. And so in the Greeks' minds, the increase in flow was partly because refugees were telling them how great Greece was. In reality, refugees use phones because it's their only means of telling their family that they're still alive, that they made it there. That's basically, I mean, as important as food and water is your contact with your cell phone, right? So um, that evolved into this anti-refugee, very xenophobic mentality. And the demographic shift changed from um, families arriving with small children in the beginning to more single young men and eventually North Africans. So the demographic changed and that changed Greek citizens' attitudes. And part of that is not understanding that often families, when they are fleeing from, from disaster of whatever kind, economic or political, they often send single young men and then secondarily single young women first, because if those people can get jobs and send money back, then maybe the families won't have to flee. So there's this misunderstanding about what a refugee looks like um, and what it means to deserve aid. And that also compounded with this, like the amount of money flowing into Greece for aid was enormous, um, not just from the U.S., but from the EU, from the U.N., but... Refugees were being housed in this massive camp that was only designed for 3,500 people. There were almost 20,000 at one of the heights. The Pope came and said it was as bad as a concentration camp, and people were doing self-harm. There was just a lot happening. And in the Greeks' minds, where they had sacrificed so much, if all this money was coming in from overseas, but refugees were still having to live in this horrible condition— then there must be some sort of massive corruption. The refugees are still being treated really poorly. They're still stuck on the island waiting for processing. But a lot of it isn't a money issue. It's a political and social willingness issue. So by contrast, what happened and when did it happen in Colombia? So by contrast, in Colombia around 2016, so around the same time frame, Venezuela was economically collapsing. And what's important to know is that economic collapse is not an international reason for refugee protection. So technically, they're not under refugee protection internationally. They fled an economic collapse, not war, not persecution. Persecution is the criteria. But Colombia didn't have a choice. 2.4 million Venezuelans fled into their country. And they decided from the outset not to have an encampment policy. They only ever set up a camp for temporary for about three months to allow people to transition through. Of course, they have an advantage. Venezuelans speak Spanish, so it is possible for them to get jobs in Colombia right away. But on top of that, Colombia did a very big public um, relations campaign. So letting people know via YouTube and Facebook and all of these um, communication platforms 
what the government was doing, what they weren't doing that well, but they knew was a problem and they were working on it. And it's not perfect. No government's perfect. But I think transparency of information, not letting there be an encampment strategy, and also they made a temporary protection status that the Venezuelans could apply for. So they have to register for this pass, but it allows them to work and access social services. And what it also allows is for Venezuelans to pay taxes. So all of these systems that they're using, like hospitals and schools that were running in the red before because you have people who can't pay, now they can pay taxes and they can pay into that system. Because they don't have to hide. They're not illegal. And any money they have can be tracked and given back to the community. That's right. And in that tracking, they also gave them 10 years of temporary protection status. So they don't have to hide for 10 years. And that's unprecedented. In the case of Ukraine, they were given three years. And three years temporary protection status is still a lot. But when you think that the average refugee situation lasts for more than 10 years, you need time to figure something out. Venezuela as a country is not going to pick itself up tomorrow and have functioning hospitals and schools. You have said trash cans can reduce xenophobia. Yeah, so the trash can um, observation is really about visibility, right? So if you went to the beach to have a vacation with your family, if the trash cans were overflowing, it's a signal to you that something's not right. Maybe the government's not on top of things. If they can't manage to dump the trash can, then there's probably something off. And that's one of those signals to local populations. Maybe things aren't right. Like maybe the government doesn't know what they're doing and they don't have it under control. And so in Colombia, Colombia has sent in dump trucks to clean up the trash because that's the very first sign that something might be amiss. And there's other things too, right? Like obviously people who are sleeping in the schoolyard where you take your kids to school, you know, in Greece, the ATMs ran out of money because people were trying to, there were just too many people on the island pulling out money. There are other signals, but trash is one of those very visible ones. Yeah, it's hard to see our own immigration stream from the southern border with enough distance to have perspective. If you're watching the border situation in the U.S., what can you share with us that we can't see because we're in the middle of it? Um, I actually did travel to El Paso, Texas, in 20, 2002, border communities are fluid. They do business across borders. They have families across borders. I mean, they speak multiple languages often. And their economies rely on that cross-border migration. And in El Paso, one of the things they talked about was that the worst thing that ever happened to them was the wall being built because it cut them off from family members or workers in their businesses that they would have otherwise had access to. And I think... We impose these restrictions on borders that control people's flow and possibly unintentionally make undocumented migrants have to be undocumented because once they've crossed that border, it's so hard to cross it. They couldn't go back, even if they wanted to. Some people just want to come and get a little bit of, they want to make a little bit of money to make their lives better and they want to go home. Most people, refugees around the world, including at our southern border, all they really want is to go home. It's different than an immigrant story. An immigrant story is one where somebody is setting out and trying to make a new life somewhere else, right? Like my family. But a refugee story is often one where they were forced. They didn't choose to move. Something happened. And that displacement is something that they long for, right? They want to go back to a place where people don't discriminate against them, to where they can speak a language where people understand everything that they're saying. They can eat the foods that make them feel you know, whole and fulfilled. And we forget that when we build these big border walls. Whatever brought someone to sit for months at the U.S. southern border on the Mexico side where they don't necessarily have access to food and water, they don't have shelter, no one wants to keep their small child in a tent, like a camping tent, in the desert waiting for their turn to cross. So thought experiment. Let's say everybody can come. No worries. Flood the United States, be wherever you need. How many millions would that be? And should we fear that? So in Greece, the problem was that the island is very small and you have a million people. Our country is huge. We have areas of the country that cannot hire enough people to work in factories. They cannot hire enough people to work in their fields. Most people will go where they can survive. And they're going to survive where they have families already or they know people already and there are jobs. And I think. I don't think the U.S. has that much to fear, and I know it's probably an unpopular position to say that 
maybe you don't give people citizenship or a pathway to citizenship, but Colombia's example of 10 years of temporary protection status, in 10 years, you could find your own way. You could save up enough money and pay taxes into our systems and build skills for yourself that maybe help you build your own country when you go back to it that could help you uplift American communities as well. We've had great migrations in the past, and I think there's a fear in the the number of it. But when you think about dispersing all those people, we get millions of tourists every year to the United States, and the vast majority of Americans probably don't even meet a single one of them in a year. I think we could think of migration that way. There are millions of international students, millions of tourists, millions of people who are on visas. Right? Like, There's so many other kinds of migrants here that are not displaced migrants that we probably in reality would never notice. Erica Friedenlund, thank you for sharing your insights with me. Thank you for having me. Erica Friedenlund is a professor at Old Dominion University. More than 1.5 million people are waiting for asylum hearings in the United States. Each one is processed slowly and individually, and it's a convoluted process to navigate. The William & Mary Law School's Immigration Clinic works to help some of those asylum seekers get through the system. And in March 2023, they had their very first approval of an asylum case, a client from Afghanistan who had fled when Kabul fell. Stacy Kern-Shear is a professor at William & Mary Law School. She's also founder and director of the Immigration Clinic there. Stacy, what kind of cases right now are consuming the Immigration Clinic? Right. So in our, in our clinic, um, we do a lot of asylum cases, and we also do a lot of cases for those who are survivors of violence, either in the United States or in their home country. Are these primarily cases from people who've come across our southern border? So, yes, some have come across um, the southern border from Mexico and Central America. But also, especially in the last few years, I would say a slight majority of our cases um, have actually been those who fled Afghanistan uh, when the Taliban took over Kabul in August of 2021. What do they need? Help me understand why they need your services. So the immigration clinic, we are the only you know, fully pro bono legal service provider in the region. You know, there are only certain ways in which a person who immigrates to the United States has a pathway to a green card. So, for example, those who were evacuated from Kabul in August of 2021 and the months thereafter came into the United States and, you know, they were given a temporary sort of parole, as we call it. Parole means we know you're here. We're going to allow you to stay. We are not going to try to deport you during this time. But this isn't a pathway to a green card. This is a temporary quasi-status. So in that period of time where you have this permission to stay, you need to figure out how are you going to then get yourself on the pathway to a green card? So that's what many people um, who come in like need help figuring out. Our immigration system is incredibly complex. And just because you're here doesn't mean that you get on the pathway to lawful permanent residency or what we all refer to as a green card, right? So immigration representatives such as myself and my colleagues and, you know, how we work with our students is that we help. Can you get on a pathway to a green card by applying for asylum? What has happened to you? Are there a type of visa that is available under your circumstances that will get you to green card? Because you can't become a United States citizen without first having a green card for a particular period of time. How do you deal with the language barrier? Um, you know, we rely a lot on amazing community members and volunteers um, who speak a variety of languages. Now, some who fled from Afghanistan, um, they were interpreters, you know, embedded with the U.S. military. So they have some English, and um, some of them, you know, are incredible. <laughs> like they, they help with others who, who weren't interpreters, you know, who worked with yeah. the U.S. government and the U.S. military in other ways. But in general, like, we really do have to rely on those who are willing to donate their time. How helpful are you? What can you do for them? 
We have been, you know, successful in helping, you know, families and individuals apply for affirmative asylum with the Department of Homeland Security. So, you know, we think of the the asylum process is very, you know, complicated and it is long. You have to prove your case. So we help prepare um, the case for our clients to submit to Homeland Security to say, here is why I meet the criteria for asylum in the United States, and then accompany them to their interview, um, the asylum interview that everyone must have uh, to, to be there as their support and their representative and make the case uh, that they should be granted asylum. So we have been successful about getting individuals and families um, asylum here. Uh, this also could apply to individuals who are applying to a certain type of for a certain type of visa, uh, in which case we help them prepare that visa application uh, and pre- you know prepare the evidence that they need to to show you know Homeland Security here's here's how I meet the criteria under United States law for this type of visa. How has the experience of helping people who fled Kabul when it fell different from those who've who've come to America across the southern border? There are a couple differences. Many of our families and folks from Afghanistan, you know, they were living their lives not anticipating necessarily having to flee quickly. You know, everything was one way, one week, and then the Taliban was much faster um, at getting into Kabul and taking over. And so it was like, we have to go to the airport now. And then, you know, the our, our clients who come to us through Central America, through Mexico, they are fleeing different circumstances. That doesn't really make a difference in our preparation of our cases. You know, it doesn't, you know, that doesn't really impact our relating, but it is sort of a difference in the circumstances that have led to uh, different groups migrating to the United States under, under traumatic, traumatic circumstances and, and cataclysmic events. Is it easier to help those who fled Kabul get citizenship or get on the path to citizenship than it is for the others? No, I wouldn't. I can't say that categorically because every case is is unique. Everyone has their own individual circumstances and story um, and reasons, and and they fled and who you know what what was happening to them or what could happen to them in their home country. So. I would always hesitate to say like a one category or, you know, one part of the world is easier than another to, to navigate our system because it really is about what about, what is, what is it about you? Like, let's talk about you, the, 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 the individual, what has led you here and why do you qualify for a particular pathway to a green card? So it's much more individualized than that. And I think that's the work of a representative and as an attorney, you know, to really like make the case for this person, no matter where they come from. So a few years ago, the U.S. Congress enacted the Kabul Appropriations Act Mm -hmm. for people from Kabul so they could get their decision faster. How long does it take for them when they go through the system, typically? And how long might it take for others? At first, it was working. We were seeing decision, we were seeing folks get interviews, you know, within a month or two, which is amazing. And then we would see them get their decisions within the window that Congress had, you know, put in the legislation. So for a while, things were moving in a way in a way that was extraordinary um, in the sense of like from the time of submitting your asylum petition to getting a decision um, would be, you know, less than a year. Even for our OAR parolees, that is slowing down and we're seeing like wait times now for both interviews and for decisions now more than a year, even if it's two years, okay, that is still a more expedited than everyone else who it doesn't have this congressionally mandated um, timeline. So, you know, we have had folks that we assist here in the clinic who wait years for an interview, like forget the decision, like years to even get an interview to to make their case for asylum. So the backlog of asylum interviews is years long. At the immigration clinic, about how many clients have you served each year? You know, we're pushing on, you know, 100, I would say, people that we have assisted since our opening, which is a lot, you know, and I, and I, you know, one thing that does make us different is, you know, we are we are not 
a nonprofit, you know, legal aid office. We are a law school clinic. Yes, we want to provide the best representation to community members who are underserved, but we do so also in the name of, of teaching, also in the name of training. As a clinic, you know, you have to balance what can we handle and what types of cases and how many can we handle knowing that, you know, it's myself, it's one other supervising attorney, that's just the two of us. You know, we're, we said we're, we're a two-woman show with, you know, a, a handful of incredibly dedicated law students. So our numbers reflect that and reflect that we are doing a good job in training students who, once they graduate to go out and perpetuate this work in the communities where they live. You see sometimes what students are getting out of it emotionally and intellectually? Mm -hmm. You know, this is a very intense experience um, for law students. You know, for many, it is the first time where they are the ones sitting across the table from somebody who says, I need your help. You know, and at that moment, they learn Oh, I can know, I can know all the law. I can know every case law decision. But when somebody is sitting across the table say, I need your help, you have to you then you have to remember that you're a person and you are there to not just know the law, but also help your client navigate through it and learn their story and talk to them and keep them informed and help manage their expectations of the system. Um, so it's it's learning on a whole other level. And many of our clients, like I said, if not most, have, have come from some sort of trauma, whether that trauma happened in the United States or that trauma happened in the, in the country from which they fled. So students are learning how to do hard legal work with hard cases, you know, and it can be really transformative to them in understanding like, wow, like I can do this and I have the skills to help people. And they go to cities around the country, you know, to practice law. And even, you know, I'll get emails and even if a student, you know, f even if a student isn't doing this work full time, they'll be like, oh, you know, Professor Kern Shear, like I joined the pro bono practice at my firm and I, and I'm on an asylum case, you know, and they were really impressed that I can do this because I did one in law school, you know, and that is just extraordinary. So not only are we yes. able to assist people that are here, but I know that people are in other places in the country getting incredible representation because of the students who have come through and are now serving in their communities. Stacey Kern-Shear, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Absolutely. I was so happy to be here. Thank you. Stacey Kern-Shear is a law professor at William & Mary and director of the Immigration Clinic at the law school. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. The war in Ukraine created the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. Millions of people have fled their homes for Europe, the United States, and elsewhere. Patrick Ramey is a professor of international studies and political science at Virginia Military Institute. He says Poland has taken in the most Ukrainians and has actually done a good job of welcoming and resettling them. Patrick, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022 caused what's been called the largest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. How big was it? And was it really the largest in Europe? Well, it certainly is the largest in Europe since the Second World War. And we've seen uh, there are now six million Ukrainians that are refugees outside Ukraine. There's another six million or so, maybe six to ten, that are uh, displaced within Ukraine. So together, that's about a third of the population of the entire country. About a million of those now are in Poland where some of those cities like Warsaw and Gdansk and Krakow have increased in population by 20, 30 percent. What countries did all those Ukrainians go to? And across how many checkpoints did they have? So predominantly they traveled uh, across the western border of Ukraine into Poland. Uh, and Poland became sort of the hub for processing refugees, uh, providing them entrance into the European Union. In addition to that, a number uh, have been voluntarily or forcibly 
sent to Russia as well, uh, including several hundred thousand children. What about the countries surrounding Ukraine other than Poland? Did they also take in mass numbers of Ukrainian refugees? Yes, and particularly some of the smaller countries, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, the Baltic states, have done an enormous amount for Ukrainian refugees, as well as uh, Slovakia and Bulgaria uh, on Ukraine's western border. How do you think overall Ukrainian refugees were received in Europe and in the countries surrounding Ukraine? So very positively, by admission into Europe when they cross that border into Poland or, or other European Union countries, um, your, uh, Ukrainian refugees are entitled to all the social services of a normal European Union citizen. So they have access to schools, they have access to health care, and that was an enormous burden for host nations to take on. And they did so with European Union financial support. Uh, but because there was a sense of solidarity, particularly in a place like Poland, with the Ukrainian people who had been attacked by Russia, the popular sentiment in those countries has been overwhelmingly positive. You know, in the first days of the invasion, there were incidents where Ukrainian citizens were allowed to cross the border, while some non-Ukrainians faced obstacles. What was that about? Well, I think it was bureaucratic more than anything else. Um, there was uh, a legal framework developed to process Ukrainian refugees. And um, so on the border, you have uh, people taking names, getting information, looking at passports. And that was set up specifically for Ukrainians. Um, I think there was just – there was confusion about what to do with people who had citizenship from other places that were in Ukraine and trying to leave. Was there also a racial element to it? Uh, it seems like those that were from, say, African countries or the Middle East uh, experienced greater difficulties. Um, but a lot of the citizenship requirements for people, uh, European countries have agreements with both each other, but also places like the United States for visa-free travel. Uh, and so a lot of people are coming from places where they didn't have those same agreements. You said Poland did an especially good job taking in Ukrainian refugees. What are they doing differently from what we've seen during the crises in Europe in the last decades where refugees have tried to come to European countries? Well, I think fundamentally they're being welcomed. And that is a, a significant departure from what we saw just a few years ago with the Syrian refugee crisis, where some countries did welcome the Syrian refugees, notably the Germans. Um, the Germans uh, essentially invited the Syrians to come, and, and so that big migratory uh, caravan comes across the, the Balkans and, and up into Central Europe, whereas other states like Poland were very hesitant and, and dismissive of, of having to take on Syrian refugees. I think what really differs for a country like Poland is the proximity of the cause of the refugee crisis. That security threat in Ukraine, they think, is a threat to them as well, whereas the Syrian civil war was not something. It was a distant problem. It was not something that was on their radar. And initially, the German government seemed to welcome in the Syrians with open arms, but it became complex politically within Germany. It did become complex politically. Um, Angela Merkel took a big gamble in doing that. They did it largely for economic reasons. They have a shrinking working-age population, and they were interested in, in uh, relocating young people to Germany to, for economic prosperity. Uh, there was also a humanitarian element. You know, we saw what was happening in places in Syria and, and people needing to escape and escaping refugee camps on Syria's borders that, that motivated that decision. But once those people started to arrive, you did experience a domestic backlash from the, the German population itself. Are refugees generally good for countries economically? Yes, uh, overwhelmingly, and certainly that's the history of the United States. The United States has never had a particularly large birth rate. It's always been waves of immigrants who have grown on the American population. And so the United States is as prosperous and as powerful as it is today, uh, entirely due to waves of refugees over the past several hundred years. Uh, Germany, in inviting refugees to come several years ago, was emulating that same uh, uh, American uh, desire to, to bring refugees to their territory. Are nations obligated to take in refugees? Most are, and these are agreements that go back to the Second World War when you had that enormous refugee crisis following uh, the uh, collapse of Nazi Germany. Uh, Europe was destroyed uh, almost from one side to the other, and agreements were created to help the people who were escaping destitution, poverty, violence as a result of the conflict. 
And were those ethical and humanitarian rules or actual laws of countries and international law? Well, they're international laws that are uh, domestically agreed to and passed, depending on the country, they have different legal systems, but passed by those countries themselves. So when they're passed, you pass a treaty, you pass an agreement, it becomes domestic law as much as it is international law. So what would have happened if Poland and all the bordering nations to Ukraine just said, no, we're not letting you in? Well, one of the difficult problems with international law is there's nobody there to enforce it. So if everybody agrees not to do something, it doesn't matter what they agreed to in the past, and it doesn't matter what their particular agreements say, um, they're just not going to do it. And, and we've seen that uh, in Europe in the past. We've seen that in the United States, uh, both more recently and in the past, with waves of immigrants, whether through the southern border or otherwise. So there's no enforcement mechanism that could make Poland take in refugees. I think even though the Poles were particularly commiserating with the Ukrainians and wanted to take them in, um, even if they had not been, I think there would have been a lot of international pressure that might have motivated them to, to go ahead and take refugees in anyway. Can you talk for a moment about the Ukrainians' mass exodus and the circumstances of the people who fled the war in Syria? Now we have the bombing in Gaza. What similarities and differences do you see across those three different refugee circumstances? Yeah, in all three cases, you have people escaping violence. There are people who are displaced, who cannot return to their homes. And in all three cases, we're primarily talking about women and children, uh, extremely so in the Gazan case where about half the population is under 18. And in all those cases, uh, we're not talking about belligerents uh, in either side of the conflict. So in Ukraine, it wasn't adult males who were leaving, and 90 percent of people leaving Ukraine were women and children. Um, in the case of Syria, a similar dynamic, particularly large amounts of children, and then, of course, the same is true with Gaza. And so these international regimes, whether to admit refugees or to care for displaced people where they are, so there are more people displaced in Ukraine than have actually left are set up not only for humanitarian reasons, to protect people, to prevent unnecessary loss of life, but also uh, for practical reasons, because countries are wary of large masses of people um, coming across their borders all at one time. And so by enabling an opportunity to take care of people where they are or on the border um, and provide them food, shelter, medicine, whatever they need, water, it, it's better for everybody involved. In the course of human history, I assume, We've always had mass migrations because of war? Yes, war, and, and particularly more recently with modern incarnations of warfare where the battlefield is not clearly delineated. You know, it used to be a few hundred years ago, war was limited to a field somewhere. And you hear stories of the American Civil War where when it started, they said, oh, the battle is going to be over here. So people would go pack a picnic and, and sit on a hill and watch the battle unfold. And things got out of hand very quickly. It was a bad idea. Um, as you get into the 20th century, war sort of – the battlefield becomes everywhere. You get what's called total warfare. And so cities and schools and hospitals and daycares, and none of those places become safe spaces uh, from the damage that the conflict creates. Uh, part of that is uh, the scale of war and then the other part of that is the technology of war. Yeah, because of technological development, you can kill and destroy a lot of people and a lot of space very quickly um, and create a lot of damage. So it doesn't become – it's not personal, uh, personalistic violence. It's not one-on-one -on -one combat. It's destructiveness pretty much everywhere. So much of the conflict we're now seeing unfold in both Ukraine and in Gaza is our artillery uh, air bombardments that are coming from a very long way away and are incredibly destructive. Do you think this is going to cause us to rethink how we create wars to protect citizens? You know, I, I think um, both with war creating refugees and increasingly uh, climate events creating refugees where people are escaping natural disasters, in either case you get masses of people uh, in need and, and on the move. And I think countries have a vested self-interest in trying to take care of those problems, uh, prevent them from happening or anything else. That would be the best case scenario. But when they do happen, having infrastructure, institutions internationally set up where they can rapidly respond to these problems in a more effective and efficient manner than is perhaps is currently the case. Patrick Ramey, thank you for sharing your insights with me. Thank you very much. 
Patrick Ramey is a professor of international studies and political science at Virginia Military Institute. In the United States, mainstream media has given the Ukrainian refugee crisis a lot of coverage. Nearly every day brings new headlines about it. On the other hand, the tens of millions of people making up Africa's refugee crises are largely overlooked. Sochi Akumalafi is a political science professor at Norfolk State University. He speaks to what's causing so much movement in Africa and why Western countries aren't paying enough attention. Sochi, Americans hear a lot about the refugee crisis in Europe, but there is and has been a massive refugee crisis in Africa. <laughs> you know, I'm going to start by borrowing from George Orwell. It's like all refugees are created equal, but some are more equal than others. If you want to compare refugees in Europe to refugees in Africa, they're supposed to have the same status across the board. That's not what happens at all. I remember when the Ukrainian uh, conflict broke out. I mean, the resettlement of Ukrainians went so smoothly. On the other hand, we have refugees in Africa, in Gaza, and I know I'm supposed to be talking about Africa, but most of what goes on in Africa is what we're witnessing in Gaza right now, where refugees have been there for the past 50 years, and there is absolutely no hope of resettling them. There are four reasons why we have those refugees in Africa. You have the social factor, you have the economic factor, you have the political factor. And now, added to it, especially in the last couple of decades, the environmental factor. 100 million people who are displaced around the globe. Only three out of 10 are actually refugees. Why is that important? Because according to international law, that 70% of the people who are actually displaced because of exactly the same reason sometimes as refugees, they are not considered refugees. And that means they don't have any protection under international law. For you to be considered a refugee, you have to leave your country, cross borders, and go to another country. If you remain in your country, you're not considered a refugee. You're considered an internally displaced person. So here's the thing. We have a situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. They have been fighting a civil war for the past 20 years, over 20 years. That conflict has claimed over 6 million people. How many? Six million. More than the Holocaust. Have died? Yes, ma'am. Since the beginning of that civil war, which is still ongoing. But most of these people are not refugees because they're internally displaced. So why we're talking about refugees and laying so much emphasis on their plight, and we should do, rightly so, we very rarely talk by the internally displaced person. So in addition to the terrible displacement underway in the Democratic Republic of Congo, what other nations in Africa are really housing many miserable, internally displaced people, refugees, whatever, but yes. people whose lives need support? Here's a figure for you. Out of the 10, you know, worst refugee cases in the world... All of them, except one country, all of them are from Africa. The only one that is not is Afghanistan. Most of these countries, they have been undergoing this crisis, some of them for upward of 10 years, 20 years, like I said. Are they mostly leaving because of violence or something else? Yes, that is the underlying factor. Most of them leave because of violence. 
they lack protection. Either the government cannot protect them or some members of the society are seeking for their destruction, for their annihilation. So they have to protect their family. But all that also live because of economic hardship. Many of these countries, and I'm back to Africa now, and what is true of Africa is true of some of the Latin American countries too, especially when you talk about economic hardship. You have limited economic opportunities in many of these countries there. And I remember I used to hear when I was an undergraduate that, oh, some of these countries, you know, some of the families live on one dollar per day, a family of four. If you live on one dollar a day for one day, you can survive. But if it is one week and two months and years, many of them run away from their hardship because it has become unbearable. And in extreme cases, they might actually leave, lead to starvation. One of the many African nations that has taken in millions of people who are displaced is your home country of Nigeria. What have you seen there? Nigeria, just like many other countries in Africa, does not have the resources. Because one of the things you need to manage refugee crisis, it's funding, a lot of it. Many of these refugees cross into Nigeria, not because Nigerians are inviting them, not because Nigerians say, come on over here, we will do our best to take care of you, because they don't have the resources. And even when they have the resources, because of domestic politics, the political will is not there. So these refugees cross into Nigeria, yes, there are thousands of them, even millions of them, but most of them are there to faint for themselves. Have you ever had experience of actually meeting some of these families and seeing up close what their needs are? It was in the 70s, mid-70s, and Ghana was going through a terrible economic hardship. And there were thousands and thousands of Ghanaians who came to Nigeria and, and, and they were assimilated. Many of them became teachers and at high schools and elementary schools, and many of them took whatever job that they could get. Some of these folks were actually my, you know, English teacher, physics teacher. They were accommodated by Nigerians until domestic politics came in. And people were, okay, we have our own economic problems. I think it's time for these Ghanaians to go overnight. Many of these people were repatriated. They're just too faint for themselves at the mercy of, you know, humanitarian organizations. At the mercy is such a good phrase. Does international law provide safeguards for people who are in these dire circumstances and dictate that they should be taken in when they need to be? I'm so glad you mentioned international law. Let us talk about the law of war. Because the reason we have refugees, at least one of the biggest factors, is political violence. War, civil war, and so on. When you fight a war, international law demands that there are certain things that you cannot do. You cannot attack civilians. You cannot attack people who are not in the battlefront. And what happens is that most of the people who become refugees, who are displaced, they are women, they are children. They are defenseless people. So if countries, if nations obey that international humanitarian law in the first instance, we would not be talking about refugee crisis. There will still be refugees, but most of them will probably be economic hardship refugees. Countries, unfortunately, ignore, ignore this law. Does international law give them any protections, or does it just say, we as the world's nations ought to be taking people in, but we don't have to? <laughs> Who says international law says the United Nations? 
I'm going to be a little bit hard on the United Nations right now because I'm going to ask this rhetorical question. When was the last time that the United Nations was able to really enforce any law that is critical, especially when we are not talking about Western countries, when we're talking about, you know, developing nations, whether it's in Africa or it's in Latin America or wherever. As long as you have the Security Council and some of these countries, all of these countries that we are talking about are not any of the five members, they don't have any veto power. It takes only one country to make that body dysfunctional. And that has been the story of the refugee problem, as has been the story of so many problems facing developing worlds. Soji Akumalafi is professor and department chair of political science at Norfolk State University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.